Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. Hello, Sounds True friends. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is Spring Washam. Spring is a well-known meditation teacher, healer, and visionary leader now based in Atlanta, Georgia. She's considered a trailblazer when it comes to bringing mindfulness-based meditation practices to diverse communities. She's the author of the book, A Fierce Heart, finding strength, courage, and wisdom in any moment and also a new book. It's called The Spirit of Harriet Tubman, Awakening from the Underground. She's also one of the founding teachers at the East Bay Meditation Center, a member of the Teachers Council at Spirit Rock, and the founder of Lotus Vine Journeys, a one-of-a-kind organization that blends indigenous healing practices with Buddhist wisdom for transformational retreats in South America. Spring, welcome to Insights at the Edge. Welcome. I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. Here at the beginning, and as a way for our audience to get to know you a little bit, can you share with us how you first discovered meditation? Yeah, you know, um, when I was younger, I was very drawn to psychology. Um, you know, I think that happens as you grow up with all this different traumas and experiences. So as a teenager, I was very interested in psychology. And I think I always somehow knew that the suffering around me internally, externally was something to do with our minds. Uh, that was a very early thought I had. Something's going on with our thoughts and our thinking. And so and as a teenager, I was very interested in understanding my mind. And so that naturally led to a period of exploring different meditation teachers, practices, and lineages. So I started off first with the Paramahasa Yogananda, the whole autobiography of a yogi and his whole um, teachings. And that's really where I started. I first started practicing there. And then that led me... Um, in my early 20s to do a meditation retreat, an insight meditation retreat, which I had no idea when I signed up for this retreat that it was being led by Jack Cornfield, a well-known Buddhist meditation teacher. And that was sort of my doorway was during, I remember I went to a 10-day retreat in the desert and practicing the sitting meditation and walking meditation. It's when my mind finally stopped you know, the madness, there was like a cooling off period. <laughs> and I saw something there um, that was deeply life-changing. And so I kind of just, after that, I just became a very serious, dedicated practitioner and spent years on retreats and um, teaching and uh, sitting. And that sort of was just like um, a very foundational piece is the mindfulness, insight practice, and then Buddhist philosophy has always deeply resonated. So they go together. Now, when you say you were on the cushion and your mind stopped and something happened that was deeply life-changing, I want to understand more about that because I think sometimes people who haven't 
been on long meditation retreats are like, okay, what happened to this person? It was a kind of like, quote unquote, conversion experience or something. People call it an awakening. What was that? How did it change the person? So help that listener who's a little bit like, okay, I don't really get this. Yeah, I I was in, I I had the same thought, you know, it's like meditation. I don't understand how sitting down and being quiet is going to help me, you know? Well, that's from the very, you know, a kind of superficial level. But what happened was like in my life at that time, I feel like I was in a, a sort of a spiritual emergency. And with that, your mind feels so out of control. Your thoughts are racing. You believe every thought you think, right? So there's a lot of anxiety and catastrophizing and I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Oh my God, where am I going? I'm lost. What's happening? You know, the mind just is in this torrent of um, confusion and tangles. And I didn't know if there was an end to that or there was a stoppage to that or how to work with that. So most of us are just reeling all the time based on this inner content, right? Which is highly negative and um, very critical. And so what happened was during that time when I began to practice learning how to rest in the present moment, right? Learning how to let go of the, the stream of insanity that was just chitter chattering away incessantly. And I was able to drop into, I guess it was a, a kind of observation mode, right? Like I didn't, I had a choice. I didn't have to follow. There was space between the insanity and somebody observing the insanity. You know, they were no longer married. And so with that, I could develop a kind of skill, which is like, okay, this is happening. These thoughts are here. These emotions are flooding me. Okay, how do I work with this? How do I not act it out? How do I not um, make it worse? But how do I just be with it? And that simple directive just sit with it, hold it, be aware of it, feel it. For me and many others, we experienced that as revolutionary because we didn't have a way before. We were just thrown, you know, it's like being thrown into the water. Well, you're going to feel different if you have a raft than if you're just out in the, you know, you're, you need something to hold on to. You need something to navigate um, where you are in your mind. And so, I think the enlightenment isn't what people expect. It's not this download of information that changes you. It's sort of like a technique of disengaging from the insanity. It's the strategy. And then when you do it and you think, wait, wait, I just did it for five minutes. Let me try another five. The peace that comes from that stillness from not being on that roller coaster or at least experiencing the roller coaster but more with space you feel free for the first time you realize wait i'm not bound to this and that's i think when people say i had an awakening they they're really talking about experiencing real peace of mind and that there's a path and there's a road and they, they learn how to navigate that road. So I don't think it's always what people think. It's more like what it isn't, <laughs> you know, it's like stepping outside. So that's my, that was my experience. I can't speak for everyone, um, but having talked to so many people who meditate, often it's moments of peace that are the enlightenment. It's not like getting something. It's like, releasing your attachment to this like insane roller coaster that's always taking you on some crazy experience, you know, when you're unaware. Um, so that's how, that was my direct experience of what happened there. Thank you. Very clearly explained. Now your new book, The Spirit of Harriet Tubman, it's very interesting, Spring, because <laughs> the book is you could say a combination of some of your study and research about Harriet, but that's really a small piece of it. The majority of the book you could say is quote unquote channeled. There's some kind of merging, if you will, of the presence of Harriet's ancestral living spirit 
as you experience and give voice to it. And I'd love to know about how this first started for you, how it became obvious to you that you were being asked to put this into book form. And this is a big deal. Yeah, this is a big deal. And first to say, you know, I'm as mystified and still processing my relationship and with Harriet Tubman, the spirit of Harriet Tubman, it's still evolving. So I was as surprised as anyone when this, all of this started to emerge. Um, and I write about that very frankly, I take the reader on a journey of my own internal understanding of like, what is going on? What is Harriet Tubman? Harriet's here, you know, from that to trying to um, encapsulate her deepest message for this time. Um, so just to say, I'm still in awe, I guess that's the word, in awe, and and, and it's a mystery to me, um, but it's unfolding. Yeah, it's still in the process. That's why I'm in Georgia, no doubt. <laughs> sort of the stronghold of the revolution right now. But I write about it a lot in the first chapter. All of this started to happen really the week before George Floyd in May of 2020 was murdered. And we kind of had this moment in time where it just felt like the tectonic plates underneath which we were all standing were just shifting. There was, you know, for a lot of people, a moment during the summer of 2020 where it was just catalytic change in consciousness. And I feel like with that change, something erupted, something uh, tore apart. I feel that it was the emergence of deep compassion that began to shift. There was an awakening of a blindness. Um, so I think of it as a crack in the matrix, I guess for lack of a better word. And I feel like Harriet's spirit flew down, right? In that crack. Um, because we're ready. We're ready for maybe a message like this. We're ready to understand our relationship to the world of spirit, that we are um, more than what we know, and that the ancestor world is alive. You know, there, it's, a, it's alive like the stars are alive in the universe and it's moving. And so a part of this journey of my own um, experience with Harriet was also to take readers on a journey that they're living in a a, a galaxy, a, a, a universe that is alive. And, um, you know, we are multidimensional beings. We're, you know, so some of this was also about bringing that. Um, and then I always say, like in the first chapter, Harriet rescued me. I was like so many people flown around during that time going, oh my God, I don't know how to rise to meet this moment. You know, I had a huge community in Oakland and um, everybody was pressing the 911 button on their phones and their house. And it was like, oh my gosh, I have to find some bigger strength in myself to meet my own trauma reaction. And then to be some type of leader, to be a sort of... Um, Oh, inspiration for my community to kind of help us carry this, um, this trauma, this pain, this, this violence in a compassionate way. So I feel like Harriet rescued me um, on so many levels. I'm, I'm forever gratitude, you know, forever grateful, have so much gratitude for this relationship, which, um, which I'm happy to answer questions about or sure, of course. How did more. how did her presence first appear to you? So I write about this a lot in the second chapter. So I the first time was in this very powerful visionary dream experience where I was running for my life and I was being chased. And I remember just feeling and smelling and this this intensity and I was being chased and I didn't know where I was or what was happening, but I had this sense of extreme danger and I was seeing images of slave catchers, Nazis, um, and 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 then just feeling the chaos. It kind of reminds me of what happened on January 6th. This insert, I was like, I was like seeing that images of that, being chased, people being hurt, danger. And um, I was, the next thing I know, I just remember my hands were burning. I was holding on to the back of a rope and it took me a while to be like, what am I, I'm, I'm running, I'm holding on to something. Oh, it's Harriet Tubman's dress. 
I'm holding on to the back of Harriet Tubman's dress. So this is where the relationship really started, right? I have this experience. Then I felt Harriet Tubman's energy around me every day after that. And every time I would close my eyes, I would see her name. I would see images. I began to um, feel her. I began to listen to music and I would dance and I would feel her holding my hand. And my mind just began to be filled with thoughts and images and conversations. And um, that's kind of what the the beginning was. And then I put out a class, like remember 2020, we were all, what were we doing? Putting out Zoom classes. So I thought maybe somebody else is thinking about Harry Tubman or getting these downloads. And I just put an online class together, the Dharma of Harry Tubman and the class went viral. So then I had hundreds of people coming on and it just led to this deepening relationship. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll pause there, but it just, it just began to feel like every moment Harriet was giving me this energy and I felt that it was so empowering. It was like, well, if Harriet's here, I could climb Mount Everest. You know, you have that sense, I think, with a spirit like that, like, you know, she's been here before. She knows what's happening. She's lived through this. So there was this tremendous comfort, you know, um, to be um connected to her spirit felt so deeply comforting to me. Do you feel her presence right now as we're talking about her and having this conversation? I often feel her presence when we're evoking her, when it's the book where I'm sharing. Yes, I'll often get like, um, often get really hot or I'll get goosebumps or I'll start my belly. Well, I'll just start kind of shaking a little bit. I'll feel this like rush of energy. Um, and I'm I'm getting used to it. I'm just kind of like navigating. <laughs> like, all right, well, this is a physical somatic experience. Okay, Harriet. <laughs> you write about the self-doubt that you had, mostly about your own capacity and your own readiness or worth to be the messenger, you know, to really do that. But you don't really write about having doubts of, you know, was this really a truthful presence of hair. You don't really, it seems like you didn't really question that. You just questioned your own vessel's capacity. Is that true? Yeah, that's a really good observation. Well, you know, for, for my life, just spending so many years in meditation retreats and having many mystical experiences of um, different states of consciousness through concentration, I always had this side that could go really deep. And then, and now when I say really deep, I mean deep into non-ordinary states of consciousness. I just had that propensity, you know? And so then when I started working with medicine, the plant medicines in the jungle, I started, and then I spent a year living in a Shipibo village. I saw that I had this ability to kind of connect between these different worlds, the whole plant world. And, and then, you know, so there was this opening, but no, it was so real that there was no way that I could doubt the experience, you know, it was like, okay, what I doubted was that anyone else would <laughs> understand this and that I would be perceived as like, oh my God, this woman is kind of crazy. What's going on? She's talking to Harriet. But I didn't doubt my own experience. But yes, I doubted. I questioned Harriet Tubman. I was like, Harriet, call ta Coates. Call Angela <laughs> Davis. I am not a theologian. I am not, you know, I, I, I don't write papers on Black liberation. I write on healing trauma. Like, what is going on? I'm not your girl. Yeah, this sounds crazy. I think there's people who are better equipped. I definitely had a lot of doubt about this. This is, you know, undoubtedly one of our most beloved ancestors and, and represents so much to so many people that to get it wrong was terrifying. I was like, what, you know, that was the terrifying part. I didn't feel like I was the right person. And Harriet um, still convinces me. <laughs> no, I'm not making mistakes here. So I just, I was just very, a lot of humility, a tremendous amount, you know, the mystery of, um, of the spirit world ancestors and conversations with ancestors. It's just, 
Yeah, it's a it's a whole realm. And I never would have, if you would have told me I would write a book about Harriet Tubman, I would have laughed a couple of years ago. I wasn't obsessed with her. I was, I loved Harriet Tubman. Who does not love Harriet Tubman? But I didn't have a fixation or um, this was completely out of the blue. Um, I guess that's a better way to describe it. For those of us who don't have an experience of our own of partnering with an ancestral presence. We've never had that experience, but we long for it. And we think that perhaps we could be effective as a human in a partnership like that. What would you suggest? Well, I think that this is a really important question and inquiry for everybody because um, we grow up in the West as not understanding that we come from living lineages. We don't see the world in that way. We don't, most people don't have an ancestor shrine in their home. Most people don't cultivate that. They don't believe it. They just appear here and they think I am who I am because this is how it is. They don't realize that they are who they are because of their great, 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 great grandmother or great, great, great grandfather that those energies are alive in us that we, you know, we know this now through you know, so much DNA and epigenetics that we're a stream and we're affected. So I think the first thing is to recognize that you come from a, a living lineage where your people were born, where they died, their culture, their customs, their dances, their songs, all of this lives in you. We may be oblivious to it because we grow up in a very scientific way. We see life through one particular lens and we don't see that we're living in the cosmos of tremendous magic and fluidity. And and um, and so we have to start by just opening to the idea of it consciously like, hey, I open to this idea and then I could actually begin to collaborate because the veil between this realm and the spirit world, or some people put it in the language of dimensions from the third dimension to the sixth dimension. That's another way to describe it. As our, as our minds become less dense, we're able to hear and interact with these light beings in different ways. So they're around hugely active right now for everybody. You mentioned an ancestral shrine. Tell me more about that. And if someone was inspired to set something like that up, what you might suggest, yeah, and then I think how would they relate to it? You know, on how would they relate to it? Way. So, yeah. like any anything that you are doing, that you are honoring, a shrine is a place that you acknowledge, you honor, and you pay respect. Right. So, right now I'm in Atlanta, and I'm very close to Martin Luther King Memorial Park right? I'm a few blocks, walking distance, right? And when I walk by, I see all of the things that are enshrined there from the speeches often are playing while people are taking tours. That's a shrine, right? So if you have um, this desire to connect, it might start with a picture of your ancestors, your grandmother, your grandfather, the place where your people are from, maybe a piece of the flag. People often carry dirt back from their homeland, right? Where they are as a way to remember their language, where they're from. And we don't do this to hold on tight. We do this as a way of honoring the truth of I'm connected to that. You know, those energies flow in me, right? Those, those, and the, and the beautiful things that our family lineages have done flow in us. And also the difficulties, the traumas flow through us too. We know this. So starting with building something is just starting with putting something together that feels like your family tree. Maybe you buy a statue that reminds you of your grandmother, you know, like a hand, something that's like maybe she, a big round statue and you and you start to talk to them internally as a way of integrating. Yes, great, great grandmother, great, great grandfather. Thank you, right, for any suffering. Thank you for your wisdom and the pieces that are unintegrated, the sorrow. We help to try to let that go. May we forgive. May we heal. May we, you know, when people go to this um, Dr. King's Memorial Park right here, a lot of them are church people and they're in prayer. 
They're asking for forgiveness. They're praying for, you know, their ancestors who suffered and also the ancestors who helped to liberate. So we just start, the basis of a shrine is a place you go to honor, to respect, and to communicate with, right? Once your ancestors see you have this place, the doors open, they're like, okay, right, thank you. Well, next thing you know, you're talking to grandma, you know, or you're receiving healing messages or some energy that you need. You know, there's pieces that they complete for us. They empower us. They give us a certain ground. You know, when you like, you know, that my Angelo used to always say, I stand as one, but I come with 10,000. Maya was in touch with her ancestors and I know she's, they stood with her. You could feel it in the power of her words is her spoken words. You know, you felt the, the 10,000 right beside her holding her. So I think that we can access that level of um, power and courage um, by opening the door. And the shrine just to make sure I understand correctly, has potentially members of my own family biographical lineage, but it could also be figures that I've found inspiring from any time in history, yeah? Absolutely, because everybody is our ancestor. <laughs> we have the, the the blood ancestor, right? But at the end of the day, we go back and back and back and back. It's one family tree, but yes, on your personal shrine, it's whatever evokes that feeling for you of connection. Maybe someone is from Nigeria and they have a Nigerian statue representing the homeland, your primordial ancestors, right? You, you'll find in your, you know, your way with a shrine, maybe you're out walking and you find a beautiful shell and it reminds you of the beach and and, and, you know, in South of France or reminds you of the waters in the Caribbean and you put it on your ancestral offering, you make an offering. You can also make offerings of incense and flowers and water and, you know, in, and it's shrines are alive, right? They're, they're portals, they're channels, you know, they're alive. Like any altar is alive. You know, you put a picture of Bhagavan Nichananda on your altar, you're going to feel the spirit of that being, right? Anything you put on your altar is a, a place of connection, potentially. I'm calling this energy in. I'm asking for the wisdom of that. So connecting to our ancestors, I think is incredibly important. And I guess the word for me is nourishing. Like fortifies something in yeah. us. So yeah, that's you know, a, and yeah. It, it, I just to share uh, right before this conversation, I had a meeting with uh, a group of people. It sounds true that work on our foundation, the Sounds True Foundation, and we just had a few minutes of silence before the meeting started. And I was fresh from being with your writing on the spirit of Harriet Tubman, and I was just tuning in, like, what are the ancestral spirit forms that want to partner? with the Sounds True Foundation. And I noticed even just asking that question and holding the space for it, it felt, to use your word, fortifying. It felt empowering. And I'd love to know how the work you've done with Harriet Tubman has fortified and changed and empowered you. Yeah, well, I think it's a beautiful question, right? I think what this fortification feeling, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a feeling of we're not alone, right? That we're not alone in our vision of a creating a better world. Ultimately, what Sounds True is trying to do is contribute to humanity, right? We want, we have this need to make a contribution, <laughs> and um, and what a beautiful place to come out of. You know, sometimes intentions get kind of wacky, but our hearts are you know, are, are looking to make a contribution to humanity to better the world. And so I think when we have that mindset, we, and we have the prayer that we want to activate the unseen world for support, because, you know, Harriet Tubman was always in dialogue with her higher power, a higher power, whatever you want to call that 
you know, there's a thousand names for it, you know, from God to Wong and Tonkin, all of these are names for this intelligence. Um, and so the fortification comes because what we are invested in right now with humanity is very serious. And we actually do need to make this turn um, the health of the unseen world. They were helping Harriet. They helped Dr. King. They helped everybody sattva throughout time, you know. And so we're we're activating a, 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 a we're turning on a bigger smoke signal here than just our fireplace. We're like activating deep prayers, and um, and this is fortifying because I believe when you ask, the universe shows up. Right. We have that feeling I'm being taken care of. Everything is on time that I can meet this moment. You know, Harriet, Harriet's belief in me gave me a belief in me, <laughs> a deeper belief like, OK, I can do this. I can move to Georgia and start a revolution in the middle of an election. <laughs> That's going to be violent. OK, I'm not going to run the other direction. I'm going to, you know, what Harriet gave me was the strength to say, turn toward the storm you know, turn toward it. I know it's painful. I know like there's all these old painful wounds every on all sides. And, you know, so Harriet's belief in me actually translated into my belief in myself. So I think, and I think that's what Harriet was good at. You know, I have no doubt when she was conducting on the underground, people didn't believe they could ever make it. And she gave them that strength of being like, oh yeah, you can make it you're going to make it, you know? And, and I think that that with this particular spirit, I believe that Harriet Tubman's energy and um, of this courage and the strength is the transmission that she is delivering. Like you're not alone. I'm with you. I'll conduct you. I will get you there, but you got to also do your part, which is to get up and leave the plantation and walk, right? Which is the battle. So I feel like, that is the biggest transmission that I'm bigger than what I know, not bigger in the ego sense, but I have more capacity and strength. But, you know, we're only tested with courage when we're tested with courage. You know, it can't be analytical. We have to actually have some skin in the game, you know? Yeah, for sure. So that's the biggest area I feel like her belief in me has given me a belief in me. When you say Harriet Tubman, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, they were supported by the unseen world. How do you know that? Well, Harriet talked about it quite openly, that she was in a constant dialogue, you know, with uh, her higher power. It was just her whole life. She was listening to a different channel and moving based on the information that she was being provided on her channel, right? She was getting direct downloads and she was moving on those downloads. She was in communication. She, you know, all, all of that, her whole life was just incredibly um, intuitive and um, she was just listening to a different channel, especially at that time where everyone else was on one. Harriet Tubman was on another one. We we can see that. The reason I say Dr. King was because also he was so prophetic, you know, in his in his um, speeches of seeing beyond what we could see. Rather, he gives, you know, the last speech of his life is the mountaintop, you know, Um one of them. And also the day before he dies, you know, he he's prophesizing like, I'm not going to make it through the violence of this, you know? So he had this prophetic way of having seen the future in a way and, um, you know, did a great deal of good and just his own spiritual teachings of his own relationship to his spirituality. And I think this is also a piece of what we're bringing is we can't bring activism in right now, void of a connection to love, void of a connection to the higher power, void of having any connection to those who have come before us. We have to activate that. We have to, we need them. When you think about partnering with spirit beings, with ancestral presences. Tell me what you know about the partnership, like how it works. Are we equal partners? Yeah. Like who's calling the shots? What's our part? What's their part? Yeah, that's such a that's such an interesting question. Well, okay, so I've only really had this experience with Harriet Tubman, so I only can really speak on that. 
I think maybe I've had many partnerships, but nothing as elaborate as we're agreeing to write this book and we're we're on the journey together. Um, you know, with the spirit world, they are looking for conduits for wisdom. They're looking to to collaborate with those who can channel the power and 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 the messages, right? So because they don't have a body you know, they're relating to us because usually there's a task that they would like to be completed. There's something that they're asking for, right? There's a specific thing. I would like help with this to help translate this to help. You know, Harry was very specific. I want a book about my heart. I want a book for right now. I don't need another historical book. Those are being written. They have been written. Others will write about them. But I want something that speaks to this other part of my my being that I'm alive. And you help me tell the story of that spring. So with I think all of these they're very polite. They're very respectful. They're like, you know, we have a deal very much like how you would negotiate a contract with someone. <laughs> Here's what you're going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. It's all very like polite. You cannot do it if you don't want to. But the caveat with that is most of them will tell you this is part of your liberation now. You know, like you came to deliver this, like, you know, you you came to do this and now I'm going to help you or here's the next stage of it. So I feel like it's, it's not like you're, you don't have free will. You do. But with Harriet, I knew I was going to write this book and I knew it would be hard. I was willing to say yes to it because I wanted to. So you have free will. You know, you're not just beaten up by spirits. You know, you can get in that situation, but you just have to set a boundary like anywhere else. You have boundaries with this world. Just like I have a boundary when I'm walking in the park. If someone's approaching in a weird way, I move out of the way. I have boundaries, you know? So um, these are um, relationships that are about usually a very sacred task. And it's usually deeply involved with the benefit of others compassion and bringing something out that needs to be brought out and only you may have that particular skill or you you might be the person at the moment but I think it's all different but that's all I can say about my you know so far Harriet's giving me this task but I have a feeling there will be others moving to Atlanta I'm like all right we're all you know starting spirit underground church you know like it's the tasks are growing now Tammy <laughs> What kind of surrender do you feel was asked of you? Well, I think the first level is surrendering to blocking out the historical wounds that Harriet's life, you know, depicts. You know, Harriet's life is a liberation and a heartbreak story, right? And there was a part of me that I didn't want to go through fully into the darkest part of American history, even though we we talked about slavery and talked about all these things, but just to go through it and to read accounts of the underground archives and the records and, and to study the laws and what was happening. It was a part of me that had to surrender to go through that. You know, it was a part of me that didn't want to read you know, and, and, and understand the civil war and, and, and to relive it and to sit with it and to feel it in my body. So that was the first surrender to surrender, to be willing to go through the pain of his story and the wounds. That's of big spring. That's big. Yeah. Spring. Yeah. That's a that big was one. probably That's the biggest big. part. Yeah. You know, I fought that. I mean, we're in the middle, you know, this was 2020. It was all around. It was like, no, you got to go deeper into it, you know? And, and I did for two years. I felt like I was in graduate school with Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, you know, just studied so much to understand the, the, what her life was like in that moment in time, what the true battles were. Um, so that was the first level, which was very hard and very challenging. The second was surrendering to doing a certain amount of really hard work, surrendering my days to it, to research, to writing, to to um, allowing myself to be this channel, knowing that there's going to be suffering and there's going to be liberation here. And I'm going to have to feel all of that. 
right? And it's not resolved, actually, right? It's just this kind of wound. Um, and surrendering to, to to doing it, to saying yes, and then to showing up for the actual labor um, that's involved in some of these tasks. Some of these ancestor collaborations might involve hard work. It might involve establishing something or setting something up or, you know, and um, or getting close to something that we don't want to be close to, you know. So, so that was a surrender. And then surrendering, I knew once I ended the book on the last page that the journey was beginning. Like, I think shutting it is like, okay, I'm done, Harriet, goodbye. You know, it's like, no, I'm going to be talking about Harriet Tubman the rest of my life. I'm committed to that. So it's just also surrendering your your will, you, what you think your plan, what, what you think you're here for is different than what the universe says you're here for. So it's it's like letting go of your own agenda. One thing that I think is really interesting that you said was the hard work, the labor component. And I've been thinking about that a lot because I think sometimes people from the outside, when they think about the spiritual journey, are like, oh yeah, great. Glad you're like living in a cream puff pile or something. And, you know, a cloud bank, you know, you've entered the cloud bank. And I think, God, if you actually new and you know i have this desire to articulate more and help people understand more uh, about what's often asked and the work involved i wonder if you have anything to say about that specifically yeah i think that you're so right on that people have no idea i remember chogam trump i used to write in some of his books he would tell people just go home you're not serious like you have no idea what you're asking for when you you say i want to awaken i mean this is messy business. And I think that some of our communities, the advertising of the spiritual life really influences that. We see these skinny blonde girls blissing out in pictures and we think, oh, yes. And you know, I know what it looks like on retreat. People are walking around. They have old sweatpants on, tissues falling out of their pockets. They're reconciling their life, you know? It's a reckoning to sit down with your mind and feel what's really going on and to look at the places that were deeply unconscious. It's a, there's, you know, this is labor. And um, I've been misunderstood my whole life about my spiritual practices. Even when I was very young, I remember 23, I went on my first three-month retreat. Nobody understood me. They all thought I was going on some vacation. That was the hardest three months of my life. I wept. I cried. I mean, this was a blood sport. This was not some, oh, I'm checking out. This was the check-in. This was the hospital. This was, let's get down to looking at the tangles here. And so I just want to say that 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 you know the 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 marketing of spiritual liberation is the opposite of what spiritual lib the real walk the real work involved it means opening every door in your heart it means looking at everything what you do how you live where you suffer your you know it's 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 not a sweet cloudy I wish I could get on an elevator and go to the top floor and walk out and that I'm done, but it it doesn't. <laughs> I'm sorry, friends. We've been sold a false, a false narrative. Get ready to get your shovels out, you know, um, and, and know that you to really awaken, you have to let go. And that is the hardest thing for us. And to let go means to go in and it means to examine. And um, that work is, is, is I honor and bow to everyone doing that level um, because it's not easy. You got to have a fierce heart to see yourself and to see the confusion there. So, so try to let go of the spiritual marketing because that's just not reality. I just want to say, Spring, I'm really enjoying this conversation. Just oh, want to good. take a moment to say how much I'm loving speaking with you. What do you mean by a fierce heart? Well, a fierce heart, you know, when I was coming up with that book title, and now we're used that word fierce is used so much, you know, and Beyonce has a fierce song and everyone's fierce, you know. But I think for me, what it means is like to have a heart that can hold, you know, all of the the beauty of this life, the joy and the laughter and the community and the and the travel and the and the and the, the you know the the world the, the physical world and 
sights and smells and sounds, but also to hold the depth of like, this is really hard being alive. It's pain involved in this and there's loss and there's confusion. And um, the fierce heart in my mind is the ability that we develop a capacity to hold that deep with compassion. We can hold it, but not always with compassion, right? So how do we become empathetic to all of the suffering and not react with this hatred and aversion? And, you know, so the fierce heart's asking something of us is asking, hey, this big pile of tangles and anger and rage, you know what? You got to be with it and you got to feel empathy, right? And so for me, that's, the depth of work right now. Can I empathize with this? Can I feel this? Can I, and it's challenging. Well, you mentioned that part of your journey with Harriet Tubman involved you going into the deep pain of America's history, including the slave trade and then uh, everything that happened with Harriet Tubman's Underground Railroad and the number of uh, deaths, the violence against slaves, I mean, on and on. And you describe it uh, vividly in the book, The Spirit of Harriet Tubman. How in your own process did you come to bring a compassionate heart to those experiences instead of simply a broken or outraged heart? Yeah, because I that question is so beautiful and it's one a lot of people have because they can't reconcile the heartbreak, right? It's so heartbreaking. And I feel like to get, and I feel like Harriet pulled that out of me. Like there's different to think about slavery and then to read a narrative, an actual narrative written down in the 1800s, right? And to go, oh my God, this is someone's account. You know, it gets a lot more real. Um or like, you know, with our, with the 2020, we had to see the murder of somebody up close, right? To get it, to like feel it. And, and it's hard because it does evoke a rage and outrage when we see injustice on such a widespread level. And it's hard to hold that, right? And I agree with people who are often very angry and very upset, but it's like, okay, let's transform this, right? Because the heart can't just keep holding on it the heart's natural movement is to letting go and empathy so to see anger and hatred as sort of the delusions of the mind has given me more space i'm not mad at this person who's carrying a flag and trying to harm people it's really the the sorrow of rage and anger when it is um let loose, right? It's like, it's let loose these delusions that create this suffering where we actually want to harm other beings. So I actually do have a lot of compassion for those who wake up in the morning and their joy is to harm someone else that day. What a horrific mind state. What, and that's where I go with it to wake up every day to plot and plan the demise of other beings right? And instead of being like, I'm going to contribute to a better humanity, you know, like, wow, actually that mind state does give me compassion. So I empathize with it that, you know, beings are really lost in this. They're lost in this rage and this, and they're listening to their minds. And when your mind is out of control and it's telling you stories of survival and it's convincing you um, the ego is so enraged. It it does create a sadness in me. It's like, oh, and I also understand, oh, people are listening to their thoughts. Oh my God, they're so violent, most people's thoughts, right? So the empathy for me is still an ongoing piece. Like, you know, coming to the South, wanting to stand up for what I believe is right, the ways of being this new community that's emerging rather we call it you know the rainbow tribe or whatever something's emerging that's a lot more inclusive and and I just the the best thing I can do is just keep empathizing when I get triggered by the rage or I feel afraid I just keep coming back and this is also where the ancestor world gives me a lot of strength because they've been here they've walked path Harry gives me strength right she did it she was here. She was on the battleground. She lived through the whole, you know, like, so I think also we can take a lot of refuge in the ancestors. You know, they fought, they died. 
we will fight, we will die, you know? And so it's just kind of just seeing it as sickness and healing, not personal. Mm -hmm. That helps depersonalize it from the, the person in front of you. It's just the energy that's tormenting them. Now, you mentioned that these ancestral presences can come with an unfinished task of some kind, and they're seeking human partnership to help them complete the task. What would you say is the task that Harriet Tubman is wanting to complete with her partnership with you? Hmm. Well, you know, the book has only come out for the last couple of months, you know, the book is new. And so I think there's a, one of the tasks that Harriet is asking me for is that she wants to connect to people. Her, her power is enormous in the spirit world. And, and she wants to grow the, the underground abolitionist spiritual movement, again, like kind of reunite and fortify people, right? There's people who are standing up, right? And it's going to take a lot of courage right now for people to, you know, wow, I guess, you know, the political problems in the United States and around the world, um, they're serious right now, the fighting. And so we need an icon right now. We're kind of a leaderless movement. So to have a spiritual icon, someone who could help us traverse this area, you know, rather we're in a process of massive deconstruction, you know, there's something shifting, something's cracking. We all feel it, whether it's the 911 of the planet and it's the violence. And then, you know, we're, we're all feeling this pressure cooker. Um, and Harriet lived through that. So I think one of her messages and tasks for me is help me connect to people and I will fortify them. It's kind of like, she's like a deity, you know, like Kuan Yin, you need compassion. Where do you go? You call, knock on Kuan Yin's door. Kuan Yin, give me some compassion. I ran out. Well, I think Harriet Tubman, in a way, she's back as sort of like a deity over this deep wound, you know, like there's this wound at the corner of the the foundation it's not the corners it's the foundation right of the united states and i think that harriet can offer a lot of internal resourcing strength faith right all these qualities that we're going to get through this time she she exemplifies the suffering of that therefore she exemplifies the medicine of that you know, she lived the whole thing, born slave, died a free woman on her own land. She's been through every stage of this. So I think that in one way, Harriet's task is like, help me connect to people. My hope for you, Tammy, is after now you talk to Harriet, now you're off, right? You're off to your own, <laughs> your own creation, right? <laughs> Well, your book is a very uh, powerful introduction to her living presence, five mm. feet tall, a hundred pounds. But it's clear in the book that there is huge, 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 huge power in this presence that the small body like that. So it's, it's amazing, actually, what you- I know, it is so amazing. Thank you. I'm so glad you got a chance to read it. Yeah. Okay. There's one more thing I'd like to talk to you about, which is you mentioned earlier in our conversation a little bit about your work with plant medicine and how it's dramatically impacted you and uh, helped you with this spirit connectivity, piercing the veil, if you will. Tell me how uh, your plant medicine experiences have impacted the healing of trauma in your own life? And if you have any kind of recommendations for people who are unsure if this is a direction that's going to be healing for them. Yeah. So, you know, I was I'm writing a third book about this right now, about the plant medicine and, 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 you know, it's so popular right now. So some people are like, oh no, now they're going to talk about that. Or, you know, it is very popular right now, plant medicine, psychedelics, um, you know, I was just at this MAPS conference, um, 
where we, there was 13,000 people in Denver, all of so many therapists, so many people caring deeply about wanting to contribute to this ending the insanity that we're experiencing, you know, like, how do we stop? How do we, how do we, how do we get better? How do we really change? How do we become happier? So my plant medicine came directly out of intense trauma. And this was in 2007. That word trauma was still like trauma. What do you mean trauma? You know, it was like, we were in the dark ages as insight meditation teachers, you know? And um, yeah, I fell apart on a three month intensive doing this concentration. And I, you know, I think it just had all this unresolved um, childhood suffering, which I thought I had resolved it. That's always the the humor of the spiritual path. I thought I worked it out. Well, <laughs> back again. And it was back with a vengeance. I was, this, I, I didn't know what was happening. And I left the retreat a little early, destabilized. And I kept thinking, you need a shamanic intervention. That's all the words that kept coming to my mind. Like something has to go deeper here. And so that's what happened. I was introduced to it from a dear friend of mine who's a clinical psychologist who had been secretly working with it for a year in and out of Hawaii and said, I'm getting a lot of benefit from trauma, my childhood trauma. And I was like, okay, I, I want to work on that because somehow I'm falling apart, you know, in a really disassociated way, which is common, you know, so I was having all these trauma reactions that I didn't fully understand. So that's what led me to working with a plant medicine. I went to one ceremony in the mountains in North Car Northern California. And then that one night I learned more about myself than I had in years. And that led me to being so fascinated that I immediately went to Peru because I wanted to do it in the Amazon. That was a very, very important at the roots. I wanted to understand what are these plants and how is this happening? It was just like a new world of being so curious and that started um, years of me living in Peru, uh, studying with Shipibo. I was working with uh, indigenous Shipibo women. I felt safest with them. And I started doing huge amounts of like clearing old trauma. You know, trauma lives in not only the body, but the mind, our emotional body and our light body. You could clear it on a mental level, but it's still alive on the physical. You know, we know this now people are moving away from maybe traditional therapy and using more somatics. Um, so my first years of working with uh, plant medicine was in secret because it was so controversial. I was a teacher at Spirit Rock and leading us. So I was never talking about it publicly, but I would go spend a month, two months a year in the jungle and I was getting so much better. My, I was working out the deep knots of my family tree and I still am, you know? And when you have a lot and you're born into really difficult situations, it takes a long time, mm -hmm. you know? But the plant medicine was such an accelerator. Um, not easy. I, people think it's easy. Let me, let me clarify this really quickly because, you know, say you're at, uh, you're, you're on your spiritual path and then there's a crossroads and they say, you could take a shortcut. It's going to be the hardest walk, but straight up the side of this mountain, you're going to be hanging on for dear life. <laughs> right. But you're going to get there in one day. Or you can stay on the path you're going. You get to the same place, but this could take a couple of years, but there's no danger involved. You go at your own pace. So that's kind of what is presented with medicine. You're going to scale this up. You're going to, you know, this is, you might even you fall a couple of times. There's no guarantee, you know, <laughs> but you're going to get there. You know, that's what we're offered with at this moment. What from your experience was the danger? Well, with all plant medicines, you know, I have a videos about this. You have to the set in your setting, your intention and your own preparation is creates a dangerous or an awakened situation. You have to know who you're with, who is the maestro, who is this community? I'm about to open up the deepest places in my being. Is this people, are they worthy of holding it? <laughs> Do they, are they operating with, you know, um, do they have a healing, do they have healing powers? You know, you don't want to put yourself in a situation where others are unprepared for whatever arises. 
because that can be dangerous because it's so powerful, some of these plant medicines. So being safe in your set in your setting and also being prepared in yourself to really go in and do some really deep inner work. Now, you mentioned clearing trauma, and I think most people were tracking in terms of the physical body and the emotional body. And then you also said the light body. Tell me a little bit about that, what the light body is and how trauma leaves our light body. Yeah, this is a really important piece because often this is the piece that is the most beneficial to work with plant medicine because it can go that deep into your light body level. And so when we talk about light body, we could talk about prana, we could talk about chi, um, your light body. When you have light body work, that's when we get Reiki or we get even acupuncture works on your meridian lines in your light body. So sometimes people, we come, we have chronic pain. We don't know where's the origin. You know, so many people come with these disorders that Western medicine cannot treat, autoimmune, sleeping disorders, half my body, I can't move it. Nobody knows why I'm totally numb. These are kind of things where I would call it would be a problem with our light body. The trauma is still stuck somewhere in the system. So the chi isn't flowing. And in Tibetan practices, this yogis have to work with this all the time. You can even get like a disorder called loom. It's like an air disorder. You're basically the energy is not flowing the way it should flow. We know when our prana is flowing, right? We're like, ah, okay, good. Here we are. But when it's not, we feel like I can't move my neck. <laughs> like we feel the block. So a lot of our deepest traumas, the they're still in the light body. It reminds me of like fingerprints left behind. Somebody leaves a house, they wiped everything with tiny little fingerprint. Well, that's enough to get you fully locked up, right? You're there. So it's like this, the, the bigger things have come out, but there's a fingerprint left in the light body. And that's like the last level um, of healing in my mind. So I talk a lot about this with plant medicine, different levels where people are healing on. Um, so the, the light body is a very important one, you know, obviously. All right, Spring, a final question for you. You mentioned a couple of times that you're in Atlanta. This is new. You've moved to Atlanta. What's your sense of the importance of now being your next set of operating instructions happening from Atlanta, Georgia? Yeah. I mean, I first wanted to say I want all the listeners to to really consider sending a lot of prayers to Atlanta. Atlanta sort of I, I felt like it's become a front line of some kind of movement, but now I'm very sure it's a front line. Just the fact that <laughs> there's like people being arrested here by, you know, a lot of these black um judicial uh freedom fighters are prosecuting crimes here. And there's a lot of energy of the ancestor world and freedom and liberation and farming and use of land and sort of like, so there's a lot going on in Atlanta, just energetically. It feels like a forefront of a liberatory movement is galvanizing here. And so for me, what I want to do is just be that spiritual abolitionist, teaching meditation, teaching embodiment, bringing the spirit of Harriet Tubman in, remembering Dr. King's message that we cannot descend into madness and violence right now as much as we want to, or as much as people are inciting that, that there has to be like, we rely on the soul force, you know, that, that there's some great turning happening. Atlanta might be this battleground, but it's a symbol of something. It's a stronghold of resistance here uh, from the government, from the, you know, you know, the Senator from Georgia is also Dr. King's church. He's the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist. There's something going on here. And so to just, you know, feel that and I'm bringing Harriet, the ancestor world, the work I'm doing with Lama Rod and his new book, The New Saints. I love it. Um, yeah. And it's to be real. Like, that's what we're trying to build here is a new saint movement. And you don't have to be beautiful and perfect. This is not about the spiritual clouds. This is like down to it. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm being called to do here. And 
you know, I'm going to set up a, we're going to run a place in Atlanta, start teaching meditation, healing, giving talks. So all of that is kind of, you know, it's a, it's a new build, new building period for me. Spring Washam, I'm so inspired by your deep inner work and your clear voice. Thank you so, so very much. Oh, thank you so much, Tammy. This has been a real honor for me. Author of The Spirit of Harriet Tubman, Awakening from the Underground. Sounds true. Waking up the world. Thanks for being with us. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in the after show Q&A session with our guests, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community featuring award-winning original shows, live classes, community learning, guided meditations, and more with the leading wisdom teachers of our time. Use promo code PODCAST to get your first month free. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world. <laughs>